Diane, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everyone. I just love the... Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of that. It's great. I want to welcome the new people. It's always very, very special for me to have new people in the room when I'm sharing. And it's always been a privilege for me to share me with anyone who wants me in love. And that includes an opportunity like this to share myself and a little bit about where I came from, what happened to me, and, and what it's like for me today with this brand new way of life in Alcoholics Anonymous. It really is a joy. And it's always when I get up in front of a group that I am filled with awe that I can do it. Because I remember when I came here, I was struck dumb for at least eight months and unable to say one word in a meeting due to self-centered fear, due to a lot of pride. But it amazes me today that I can stand up here in front of a group, wherever it may be, and feel at peace with you, with myself and with my very own God. And this is a raw gift that has been given to me as the result of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I feel very strongly, and this is one of the places where John and I are on many, one of many places, that the, the program is, is all the 12 steps. And there is no recovery from alcoholism without working the 12 steps. And there is no spiritual way of life without working the 12 steps. And to come here and do nothing more than just come around uh, did not do it for me. I had to do something about the real problem, which lay very well localized, which lies, has intent, very well localized between my ears. A fact that had eluded me from, for all of my life till I came here. I always thought it was the places that I lived, the people with whom I was in touch, the things that I was doing that were getting to me. And it didn't start with alcohol. You know, um, someone misread chapter 5 once, and instead of reading that line in the fifth chapter, they seemed to have been born that way. He read it, they seemed to have been born the wrong way. And I loved it because I, that was me. I came in, my earliest childhood memories are of being different, of not being a part of, of not really being wanted, of being a source of conflict between my parents. Um, for some reason I knew they wanted a boy, I'd always known that. And um, because I felt like I had a lot of masculine attributes, the low voice and the broad shoulders and long legs and a whole bunch of stuff that, that I was really basically built for the most part like my father and didn't look at all like my mother. And I really felt that God, whatever it was, got confused at the last minute and made a snap judgment and I came out a girl when, you know, but, you know, I was sort of in a boy or something. But um, I set about, and I was quite a care and quite a tomboy as a child. I was always in my little gang wars and the cops and robbers and the cowboys and the Indians and, and forever being raised to the hospital by my mother because I had a lacerated head or a smashed finger or whatever. And I can look back today on this set of accidents that the hospital very kindly sent to my parents because they were so amazed at the numbers, you know, that I had gone so many times to the hospital for so many stitches and so many this and that. And they were all directly all the self-will run riot. I was always trying to get somebody to do it my way. I was always trying to force somebody to see it my way because my way was the best way. And yet I can remember always having a fear of not being accepted. Always having a fear of what people thought about me. Always wondering if people were talking over there and I wasn't a part of it that they weren't talking about me behind my back. And it was, of course, always negative. 
I couldn't go into the house after school and find my mother in a bad mood without absolutely knowing that I had created that. Because of something I had done, she was angry. It never occurred to me that the dinner she was working on had not turned out what she wanted or something in her own personal life was not working out. I always assumed that I was directly responsible for any of the moods that were going on in my family or for any of the moods among the people with whom I ran. And I would just try like anything to try to make it right, assuming that it was my responsibility to help other people feel right. Um, I wanted very much to be more than into everything that I was into, too. Um, I often daydreamed and fantasized about running for student body president, for example, or something really big, and yet I could not face the rejection that I might need if I weren't elected. Or even, even worse, if I might be elected, I still would have to face the fact that not everybody would have voted for me. I'd have to take a look at the vote count and realize that there were 50 or 100 or 200 people out there that had voted for the other guy, which meant that there were 50 or 100 or 200 didn't like me. That's the way I read it. A lot of really, really um, self-centered behavior. So I, I was very careful about not putting myself in a, in a position where I could get hurt. And my friendships, I wouldn't even call them friendships based on what I know in AA today. You know, friends are people with whom I share. I share my innermost self. And I allow to be shared with. And I don't worry about what, how I'm going to come across or what they're going to think of me. In other words, if I am asked to share, I share. And I'm not caught up in a lot of, a lot of self-centered fear. Whereas before, uh, I had so much crazy stuff going on inside of me. You know, from a small child, I had a lot of anger. Uh, I was always at war with the world. Um, it seemed like my feelings were always out on antenna around me. And if someone brushed the wrong way, I got my feelings hurt. Um, people that I expected, expectations, expectations, teachers that I expected, um, parents that I expected to do this or that or the other thing or treat me this or that or the other way, never quite did it, never quite measured up. And so I was always left with that feeling of, I mean, you can't trust people to let you down. They do not ever perform up to my standards. And of course, I, I set impossible goals and standards. I set stuff for me that I could no more reach than anything. And so I was always needing to be at my own hands. Um, you know, anything less than an A was never good for me. A teacher that um, was critical of me, I call it criticism, made, it, made a good suggestion to me. It was always criticism. I never got suggestions. I always got criticized. Um, People that got angry at me were crucifying me, were ripping me to shreds. They weren't just expressing normal anger because I was trying to get them to do it my way and I was stepping on their toes and they were retaliating. They were always wrong and they were always offending me. So I was always at odds. Even though extremely I didn't, I didn't uh, let you know, I didn't let people know in my life that I was upset. I stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and stuffed. And then went home and in my head did war. You know, I could see people, nice people, cut them in a thousand pieces, and I literally did this in my head, or verbalized just every filthy word that I had ever heard anywhere that I never ever said out loud. I mean, I didn't even say damn. I mean, this is the way I came across on the surface. But I would get even at home alone. And um, this is the way I made my, my, my uh, way through school. 
through grammar school, and I remember it vividly, through junior high school, through high school, always being, trying to be a part of, and being somewhat successful probably in the eyes of people that I knew, but in my own head I never was. I never quite made the goals that I wanted myself to make. I was never, you know, I would want instant success too. I was very athletic and out for a lot of sports activities, and I never was able to be as good at anything that, as, I, as I fantasized wanting to be. Uh, for example, I went out to the swimming team, and I just somehow did not have the discipline to swim the number of hours that the rest of the girls and guys were swimming to be a crackerjack swimmer. You know, I just did enough to get by because I also wanted to be good at sailing. I also wanted to be good at water skiing. I also wanted to be good here, there. In other words, I spread myself very, very thin. And what I wanted was total perfection in every single one of these things, and on top of the pile on every one of them. And when I couldn't be, I retreated fast so I could still justify or rationalize in my own mind that it wasn't any kind of defeat, I just wasn't interested this type of behavior. So I can't say that I was a terribly unhappy child, but I wasn't at peace with the world. You know, I really was not. And I, I did kind of feel like the world just didn't quite have it for me. You know, it was not a really neat place to live in, but somehow I was going to have to eat out an existence. Somehow I would have to. And so um, I really kept me to me. I never let anybody know what I was thinking. Never. And uh, even though I would be confided in by any number of friends, I never returned that type of friendship. And so my friendships were never very long-lasting, nor were they very deep. When I was poured into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had one friend and one friend only left in my life, and she had just about given me up. And she was a friend that I acquired in college. None of my uh, grammar school, high school friends that so many people do keep in touch with had I, had I maintained. But then I had done a lot of running too. Um, I stayed put in Southern California all the way through school. And in getting my teaching credential, I also stayed put in Southern California. Um, and it was in my, my third year of teaching, believe it or not, that alcohol came into my life for the first time. And it still amazes me today, considering my personality and the intensity of my feelings and the war that was going on inside of me at all times, the tension that I was under the high strung that people, you know, my parents knew I was high strung. I was told that. I was told I was self-will run riot. Being my MO, it still um, amuses me that I didn't drink any sooner than I did. However, I accepted that that my plan, my path that I'm walking this time, just that wasn't where it happened until I was almost 24 that I picked up that first drink that was different than apart from by myself. However, um, I had an uncle that died when I was 16 of alcoholism, and it was gruesome. He was very grim. And uh, I watched what alcohol did to him, and I loved him dearly. I really loved this man dearly, and I watched the personality, you know, and it was devastating to me. And I watched what it did to my family. And when my mother looked at me and said, Diane, really be careful with your drinking now that you're going away to school, um, I really personalized that. I had a feeling she had a reason for saying that. She must know something that I didn't know. And so I think perhaps it frightened me during the years in which I was exposed to a lot of active drinking as you are in college and everybody drinks. Um, you see it a lot more than I did when I got away from college and started teaching school. And it was then that it just kind of snuck up on me. You know, it caught me when I wasn't even thinking about it in terms of what it could do to me or that there was any danger with it or whatever. I welcomed it as the first true friend I had really ever had. 
And I have set myself up this particular English, my third year teaching, is my first year at high school level. And I had incredible load of classes. Um, I was teaching both the physical education, synchronized swimming and tennis, and I was also teaching the academic Spanish and English. And I had, you know, tons of lesson plans and I think four changes of clothing a day. And I was going to school at night to try to better myself not being satisfied with what I already had, I never was, never super satisfied with where I was, and somehow was just not quite able to keep the candle burning too well at both ends. You know, by the time I studied and did lesson plans and collected papers and all those kind of things, I was getting about three and a half, four hours sleep a night. And as slender as I am now, I weighed about 25 pounds less than I do right now at that time. I was just skeletal and going like a house of fire. It was happening. And I came home one night on the fly as I always did in between teaching school and going to college. And it occurred to me, and I don't know where the thought came from, it just, you know, I hadn't, that's all I, all I can tell you, that the thought came to me, maybe I'll sit down and fix myself a drink before I go to school, before I fix dinner. And um, I never ate dinner that night. Uh, that drink did for me what nothing else had ever done before in my whole lifetime, ever. I stopped worrying about the swim show that I was directing. I stopped worrying about my final exams in school. I stopped worrying about all those kids and all those papers. I stopped worrying about the relationship that I was into that was not going well. I stopped worrying about the family that I knew was against me. I stopped worrying about a bunch of my friends that were constantly harping at me that I was doing too much and going too hard and looking too thin, etc., etc. I didn't get them anymore. It was like one drink wiped out, any caring, you know, just totally annihilated the care button. And so I had another one, of course. And that's all I remember having that first night, but besides that wasn't bad because I made them pretty stiff. And I remember that I just literally floated to school and came home knowing that at long last I had found the solution to facing life. That with the advent of this new friend, I could cope. Whereas before I was, at least the point where I really didn't think I was even going to get through the school year. And I did. I got through the school year just fine with alcohol. Um, from that day forward, by the way, I, I never went one day without drinking, without taking something until I was poured into a detox just about dead from alcoholism 14 years later. Didn't go one single day. I even managed to get into the hospital with me when I had some major surgery. And I suppose I didn't have any couple days around the surgery, but they loaded me up with so much other stuff that it wasn't really necessary. But I had some kind of chemical in me from that day forward. What I did behind alcohol was, after 24 years of being born, raised, educated, in Long Beach, California, I decided it was time for a change. But my problem was really with all these people and all this family and this school and these same teachers that had educated me that I was now teaching with, I decided I was going to leave them all behind, move as far away as I could in the continental United States, which was New Jersey, that was my key thinking, and start over again and do it all right and avoid all the conflict that I had felt was going on in my life. And so I did just that. Without any complication, I was up and moved. Left a relationship of on and off of nine years and family and friends of a lifetime and just moved. And I had no bad feelings about it at all. I was so tired with alcohol, I didn't care. And I winged at New Jersey. I didn't have a job. You know, I had a relationship that I'd met in college during the summer, and that was always, you know, there was always somebody that I could lean on, right? Some guy that I could manipulate and or use or both. Um, to get things to go my way. So I had some kind of a support system to go to. 
and uh, as I look back on it now, um, things didn't go any differently almost from the start in New Jersey. Uh, in fact, I wanted to turn around and come home right away, but my pride would not let me. My pride would not let me own for one minute that I had made a mistake, that what I had done was totally insane, even though in my heart of hearts I knew it. And so I stuck it out for nine years in, in New Jersey, absolutely loathing it but determined, determined to show the people that I left behind in California that I could make it on my own without their help. And I remained very distant and very aloof and often did not write and yet was totally obsessed with what the people back home were thinking about me. I was sure the entire town where I've been born and raised and educated, all they, all they had time to do was think about me and what I was doing and what I had done but up and leaving, you know. Totally was on my mind for nine years. And I never once entertained the idea that I could possibly ever come back because I could not face their criticism. I could not face their scornful looks. I could not face running into the people that I knew had no idea why I did what I did because I could not understand why I did what I did, you know. Um, at that time, since I was living in a closer proximity to um, Spain, uh, I took my summers and took off for Spain each summer because some teachers have these nice little vacations. So I paid my money all year long and come the last year of school I'd sit and I'd go to Spain and I had quite a quite a thing going there with a, with a bunch of people that didn't know me other than what I had told them I was and that was a, the biggest pack of lies that you could ever lay on anybody. Um, I wanted to be, oh I told them I'd gone to the Olympics, I told them that I was uh, Oh, look, I can go on and on. But I laid a pack of stuff on them, making you really impress them. And I had fun living up to this image of myself. You know, it was almost, you know, like a, uh, a play or a drama each summer that I went over there because uh, I would I would inevitably bring along a new tale to get their attention, to put me in center stage and keep them interested. And um, I did that from between about 1966 and 1970, every single summer, and thoroughly enjoyed the being free from any responsibility, um, the drinking atmosphere in which I placed myself, the fact that evenings involved, you know, revolved about booze. I didn't have to worry about not drinking during the day, which I hadn't up until that point. Um, I could drink as I willed all day long. And gradually the alcohol began to slip back from, from after school type drinking till into the morning. And by the time I um, reached 1970, I was well on my way, well on my way to being a full-blown alcoholic. It was at this time that I came here for Easter one year, and um, met another guy. Guys always got me to change. If I could get somebody that I could lean on, someone I could rely on, someone that would do it for me, um, that security against the cool, cruel cold world, someone that would love me and take care of me while I went for it. So this was a golden opportunity to come back to California because he would protect me from my family and friends that had it in for me. Um, he wouldn't let them talk to me, be nasty to me, look down their noses at me. And if they did, I didn't care anyway because I had him. This was always, you know, the attitude. It was never what can I add to a relationship. It was always what can it do for me, what can I get out of it. And uh, in coming back to California, though, I made one grave error in, in, in employment-wise. Um, I had taught enough years now where it was very difficult to change from one state to another and get another teaching job, particularly at the secondary level. People called you overqualified if you had a, you know, your secondary credential, and they also called you overqualified if you've been teaching for about 10 years. And they didn't want to pay you what, what 
you were supposed to be paid until they wouldn't hire you. However, this was the attitude I had. This was the excuse I gave. I have reason to believe, however, that my M.O. turned a lot of schools off. Um, the alcohol, you know, had gone to a point where I was more erratic in my behavior than, than I had been before. And because I was high-strung, I'm sure that into a lot of these interviews, people saw that there was more than met the eye there and probably backed off for that reason. But it did give me um, an opportunity to get very bored with myself, very ill at ease with me, discover that I absolutely had no idea what to do with myself and left alone at home all day. Uh, I could not stand anyone with me. Before, I always had something going. You know, I had school, I had kids, I had after-school activities, I had papers to mark, lessons to plan, and all of a sudden, here I was with nothing. And I took after the alcohol like never before. Um, I couldn't sleep at night, so I, when I woke up, I'd drink. And it got to a point where um, every waking hour, I, ha I had a drink going. And when I wasn't awake, I was usually passed out, not sleeping. I just drank to a point where my system couldn't take any more, I passed out. And I wake up shaking so bad, I'd have to drink some more in order to continue whatever I was doing. But I was still mobile. I was still at a point where I could function, basically. However, I didn't remember a lot of what I was doing. And I managed in the next couple of years to hold down some little jobs, you know, worked in the credit union and worked for a referral agency and, and did a few little things like that that were um, enough to get me by, but nothing, you know, they still weren't, you know, what I thought that I had been educated to do, and that was to teach school. Um, however, throughout these other little jobs I did, the alcohol consumption increased that I was drinking even on those jobs. Um, I'll never forget the day that I took my rules as usual in my thermos to the credit union and uh, I used it all during the day. I'm just, you know, nibbled on it all during the day. However, this particular day I knocked the thermos over and broke it and it went all over the credit union's floor and it occurred to me that alcohol did, I mean, the, the, the vodka did smell. You know, I'd always felt the vodka was the safest way to go because you couldn't smell it. Well, when this vodka and orange juice broke all over the credit union floor, you could smell it. I was appalled. And I was also appalled that the other people in the credit union would not help me clean it up. They turned their backs and walked away. And it was pretty traumatic for me because just at the time I knocked the thermos over, the credit union doors were opening and a whole set of people were pouring in and they were lined up at the windows wanting to pay on their loans or do whatever. And I was supposed to be manning the windows. And here I was with this mess all over the floor. I mean, the carpet was just squishy with, with being wet with the booze and the lunch juice. And no one would help me clean it up and no one would help me weigh on these people. And it was just, you know, an absolute nightmare. And, um... I don't even know how I got through that day. Some people think that might have gotten my attention, but it didn't. It made me very angry at the other people in the credit union that they couldn't have helped me out. But for some reason, I think I just waited around all the slosh on the floor until finally somebody did come up and help me because I think they decided I, you know, had suffered enough and helped me out so I could clean up the mess. But I very deeply bought, you know, I went out, I was obsessed the whole day. I didn't think I was going to get food out the booth and went out and got another thermos and bought it in the next day. And people began to make cracks, make remarks. Um, someone said once, I sure wouldn't want any of your orange juice spiked, you know. And I would deny it vehemently, but I began to feel intimidated. And it was about time that I moved away from that job. And that was usually why I moved away from jobs, because people would catch on to me. And I didn't do such a good job, too. You know, when you're drunk all the time, you um, really don't function too too rapidly. 
And I remember people saying, gosh, you know, what you get done is great, but you don't get much done. You know, you're so slow and plodding and methodical and you check things over a hundred times. Well, you know, when you can't see the paper too clearly and you're shaking badly and, you know, you're just kind of running all the time, you really have to be a little careful about checking work over because you might make mistakes. And if you're a perfectionist on top of that and you don't like ever making mistakes, then, you know, you get doubly obsessive about what you do. And uh, that was the first amend I made when I got to my ninth step was to the people in that credit union, particularly the manager, because I could see where he had paid me for a job I did not do, that I had only put in maybe one or two hours a day out of eight in that job, but if that, if that. In 1973, I had the opportunity to come here to Santa Clara Valley, and I jumped for it, I went for it. Um, I was very glad at this point to get away from family and friends again. They had really gotten on my nerves. Uh, when you're drinking around the clock, as I had been that last six months particularly, and you were, you were drunk all the time, and if you weren't drinking, you were passed out, and people called or came by unexpectedly, it was very, very tough. And I began to resent people that were intruding on my life and not leaving me alone and trying to tell me what to do and bugging me on the phone. And, and um, I had managed to land a substituting job that last six months when I was capable of working. And it had just gone out the window, you know, it had gone to hell in the handbag. I could not control the kids in the classroom. I tried not to drink during the day and I'd get so shaky I couldn't even fill out a simple form if one came from the office. I couldn't do any, I couldn't function any of the normal ways that I had before in teaching. And the spring vacation of that last six months, I um, was lying at home drinking and woke up one morning and it was like whatever it was inside of me that cared about living, that cared about the world, that cared about anything just snapped, just broke. And I was still managing to do some synchronized swimming, which I really loved doing, and I was still part of a team. And we were going to have a swim show, I was working on a number that I was going to be in. That really meant a lot to me, being in that swim show and being in that number. In fact, it was a solo for a swim show, and that's how much it mattered, because my ego loved being, the, you know, the star. And this is my great chance to be the star. And all of a sudden, I didn't care about that swim show anymore. I really did not care. In fact, I made a phone call that morning and said, I'm going to be unable to be in the swim show. I had made this suit you know, this, and this baby, you know, this hat and you know, I'd done a really neat costume and I had written a very, very tough routine and I had rehearsed it and swam and swam and swam and swam through the music so I had it down to perfection, I thought, and I didn't want to do it. That was what alcohol had done to me. And so a month and a half later when school ended and I had the opportunity to move here to Santa Clara Valley with the relationship that I was in at the time, I was delighted to be able to go. I was absolutely delighted because I no longer wanted to be around people that cared about me, that loved me. And when I came here, I was so, um, I don't even remember the Santa Clara Valley and the few trips we made here to look for a place to live. I don't even remember the weekend we moved in here. I remember the days the moving truck came and was putting things in the apartment. I would not get out of the car and help out. I stayed in the car and drank all day long while my uh, friend was you know, putting stuff in the apartment. 
absolutely would not have anything to do with it. And then I remember not wanting to go into that apartment and face the mess and go through what was absolutely necessary to arrange, you know, put things in order. I just did not feel, I felt like I just didn't have the energy. I couldn't do it. And when I finally did tackle it, it took me three months to put a place in order, like I wanted it, a chore that might have taken me maybe a week if I had been, you know, in the shape I'm in today. It wouldn't have taken that long. Um, I can remember um, feeling the whole, whole inside of me was just going to pieces, I and mean, just total insanity inside of me, and so I had a desperate need to control the immediate environment in which I lived. And I remember putting everything on shelves and in cupboards and in drawers and absolutely lined up order. In other words, every single thing had to be absolutely in its place at all times. And each morning when I got up, I'd walk around to make sure that everything was in its place before I retired to the couch and turned on the TV or went back to bed or whatever I did. And this, this was a matter of maybe six months the time I first moved here in October of 73 until April of 1974 when I was poured into the detox hospital literally dying. Um, I'd been lying on the couch at home one day and prior to this time I had accepted death. I really felt that everything that was precious to me in my life had gone, that I had used up, that you know, was no longer mine and I didn't deserve to have it. None of my family or friends did I, did I deserve because of what I had failed to do. I had absolutely no self-esteem or worth or anything left. I loathed myself and where I was. I'd never liked me then, and I really particularly hated me now. And I knew I was dying. There's no doubt in my mind. And I knew since I couldn't do anything about it, that there was nothing to be done about it, and that I was going to die. Um, see, I had gone straight through my life up until this time, never having asked for help once. Never even bargaining with God. I mean, I, was, I guess you'd say I was indifferent to God. I never had any kind of relationship with him at all. I didn't deny him. I didn't hate him. I didn't blame him. I just ignored him, I guess. Um, even when I got in the worst scrapes imaginable, I didn't say to him, get me out of this one and I won't do it again. I simply, it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me to ask anybody to help including God. It also, I was, un, I was unable to ever admit I was wrong or to say I don't know. And so when I all of a sudden discovered that something had beaten me, I figured that was it. That there was no other possible escape for me. And so lying on the couch one day, I remember I had a moment of clarity and I was drunk. I mean, I was just, I mean, I, I was those last months. And I had this just brief moment in which all of a sudden I did not want to die this way. I did not want to die a hopeless, helpless drunk and leave my family to have to say that about me. I just didn't want it. I wanted to do something. And so I called the one person that I knew had been living in Santa Clara Valley that might know a doctor that I could go see. Went to see um, a, man, a man who was still my doctor, who gave me about um, 30 seconds of his time. I've been through lots of psychiatrists, and in the usual barrage of people on the way, I loved psychiatrists. I played with them, you know, I fed them whatever I thought would entertain them. And, you know, to me, it was another opportunity to send a stage and get a little attention. You know, I usually could manipulate somebody to put the bill for that wasn't any big deal. 
And I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, going to see psychiatrists. I really, you know, it was an attention getting deal. So, but this man wasn't having any of it. He heard me about two sentences worth, leaned across his desk and said, Through that, you're not going to it. And I looked at him, and for the first time in my life, I accepted what somebody said to me that was not what I would have wanted him to say. Because I was ready to put something on him, anything. But the last thing I wanted to hear was that I was an alcoholic. The last thing I wanted to hear was that alcohol might be taken away from me. Even though I'd gotten to a point where I could not imagine life with alcohol, and I couldn't imagine life without it. You know, I'd gotten that double thing going, which was really, really brutal. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I don't you know how far gone you are, but I'm going to run some tests to get an idea. And we had a couple of a months' time because I did a lot of procrastinating. You know, here I am dying. Here the whites of my eyes are yellow. I am one mass of bruises. My skin is gray. I'm not shaking. I'm leaping when I wake up after having passed out for three hours. And yet I still find excuses not to go to this hospital that he is recommending that I go to. And I'm still not wanting to surrender to let go and to go. And yet after two months' time, I allowed myself to be driven to this hospital blind drunk. Um, I drank all the way. I figured if I was never going to be able to drink again, I was going to do it upright. So I just, you know, I think I took a whole bottle of vodka literally along and finished it in an hour's drive. I mean, I was really, and I cannot tell you that I remember too much of the first three to five days in that hospital. Day went into night, went into day, went into night, and I think they shot me with stuff and stuck stuff in my mouth, and I don't know. But I do know that I was one sick cookie and that uh, I didn't go through delirium tremens only because they put stuff in me so I wouldn't, I guess, but I sure didn't loosen it. I saw some of the most crazy red furry creatures running around and people's hands turned into great big red furry mittens and it was really, uh, it was really an experience. Uh, when I could get up and walk and talk, I got into trouble immediately. I didn't want to go to their damn AA meetings, and I sat there with my arms crossed, utterly defying them to try to tell me anything. Um, drove them absolutely crazy. Was not one of the most favorite patients I think they've ever had in that hospital. In fact, they didn't hesitate to tell me so. And one gal had such a hard time getting these vitamin B12 shots. She'd sneak up behind me when I wasn't looking and lift my little light down when you have it. I mean, this is the only way she'd be able to get me in. She'd wait till I was a ghost doing something, and she'd come after me with a bloody little needle. And uh, it was it was, it was was amazing that I was, what I needed was done with attention. I wanted to be set a stage. I wanted everybody's attention focused on me. And so if I were the most difficult patient in the hospital, I suppose that I felt that's what I'd get. And they were very, very glad to be rid of me. They were very glad to be rid of me. And then I can tell you all I to see because I've talked to some of them afterwards. One of them I met here in the valley a couple years later and she said, Dear God, you were the worst thing ever. You were totally impossible. And I said, Yes, I know I was. But I needed to do what I did. And I was not, they dried me out, but they did not change my MO in the sense that I still was determined not to have to give up the booze. I figured that now I knew a little bit about drinking, and one thing that occurred to me was I never tried to control it. I never tried to control it, so maybe if I tried to control it, I might be able to control it. In fact, I knew I could. Oh, you know, I was going to be impersonating, I'd taken on life, I'd been successful at I mean, I totally missed the picture that life was a total disaster, that I had made a disaster. And, and yet I could not see that. I was totally blind to my own stuff still. So I went out, and God with infinite wisdom allowed me three and a half months. I'm still, I'm still trying, and I was brought to my knees in that quick a time, and for that I am terribly, terribly grateful today. 
Because I do believe if I had come in and tried to intellectualize any kind of surrender, I would have died out there. You know, I had to be beaten to death by the bottle and surrendered into this program for me to find their time. Because I had so much pride going, so much determination to be the iron under myself to do it my way, that it took just totally being beaten to death by the bottle for me to come. And then I had another moment of truth in which I was almost lifted out of the body. My sensation was uh, leaving the body that I live in and kind of going up to a corner of the room from it and seeing this, this Diane down there and getting a, a flash of, of the insanity of, of trying to drink, the total futility of trying to control my drinking, and being allowed to think the first time how what I was doing was leading to total ruin that there was nothing about my life or my running it that had been successful. Absolutely nothing. It had been a straight downhill since I came in. And uh, as brief as that incident was, it got my attention enough where I went back to the doctor in alcohol services who had been a doctor in the recovery hospital where I was and uh, surrendered into this program. Um, and that was when I came for the first eight months that I referred to earlier where I didn't say anything, I just came. Uh, for as much as I like to yak, and I used to, I mean, I, I talk a lot, and when, in days prior to coming here, I talked a lot because I always felt it was up to me to keep conversations going, and if I talked a lot, I'd keep people at bay and keep them from getting and probing too deep into what was going on inside of me, and yet I came here and I was literally struck dumb, literally struck dumb. Um, and like I say, a lot of it was a fear of being found out, not wanting you to know what I was really like. And yet, in spite of the fact that I did not become a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a member because I did have a desire to stop drinking. I did know that I was totally powerless over alcohol, that all I had to do was ingest one drink because I watched that happen after I left the hospital. I watched with the first drink where it led me. And because of what I had been shown in this hospital, I was very keenly aware of the progression and of the insanity and of the craving and of the obsession. And so actually, those last three and a half months, I wasn't getting rid of anything because I was too acutely aware of the fact that I was an alcoholic and that I had no control over alcohol at all. And so I came here and I, and I was a member. But I was, I was, that was about as far as it went. In other words, I had a desire to stop drinking. I knew I was powerless over alcohol, but beyond the first half, the first step, I was nowhere else. Um, but I did come and I did hear enough. What I did do was continue to live the way I'd always been living. In other words, I thought that taking alcohol out of my system would be the cure-all. That I could go back to running my life and doing what I'd always done and do it successfully now that I wasn't drinking. And after eight months, I came to see that there was something a whole lot wrong with that. That abstinence from alcohol was not the answer. It was not the total solution. There was, there was more problem. In other words, it was just symptomatic of what was really wrong with me. And that what I was doing was still causing total insanity. I had been anesthetized for so long, I wasn't in touch with the way I was running around, you know, the way I was running my life. And not having any booth in me and being able to find my name again and being able to drive a car again and being able to go hither and yon, I was getting into more trouble and more dilemmas causing, you know, everything from automobile wrecks on down. And I couldn't understand why this was happening to me because that's all I was and I not drinking. But that was all I was doing. You know, I had no sponsor. 
I was not attending meetings regularly. I had not formed any friendships or made any phone calls. I wasn't doing any of the things that I heard other people talking about around these meetings. And I wasn't doing them because I thought that was okay to do weaklings. But people like Diane, who was an island under herself, did not need to lean on other people in order to survive. So if you guys wanted to lean on each other, Walk around with your arms around each other, kissing and hugging and, and yapping on the phone and going to meetings every night, you could have it. But that wasn't going to be going in. After eight months, I experienced the most god-awful day I've ever experienced in my entire life, and it was a total result of self-will run riot and of my trying to manage my own life and manipulate me for the people and do things the way I'd always done them. And it was awful because every single toy that I used blew up in my face. Everything that I had always thought, I had thought, because it was only thinking, it was not true. It had been successful if I used it, did not work. And at the end of this year, I came to a complete and total standstill. And I was so keyed up and so distraught and so angry and so frustrated that I reached the point in which my physical mental emotional system couldn't take anymore, and it was just like a time bomb went off inside of me. The pain was incredible, and I had a momentary vision of just being blown to the wings, of just Diane just being shattered. And I had a really quick vision of a, of a, a remembrance, a recollection of a, a magazine picture that I'd seen way back in the late 1940s of a um, kid in India there doing a series in Life Magazine or Time on India. And the kid was starving, but he had this huge distended stomach, and his arms and legs were burned. And there was rubble and ruin all around him, because evidently it was town, the thing was doing something where it was town of bomb. And um, this kid was me. This total devastation was me, the life I was trying to leave. This was a total demoralization and comprehensible demoralization. And I saw for the first time the second half of step one, that my life was unmanageable by me, drunk, dry, or sober that I was totally bankrupt, and that kid represented my total bankruptcy. And having looked at this, and having seen that powerlessness over alcohol extended into powerlessness over people, places, and things, depend on a relationship with a power greater than myself that I'd heard you all talking about in meetings. And I came to believe in that instance that a power greater than myself, something other than me, must be able to restore me to sanity, to sound thinking, because I was watching it happen to all of you. In that instant, I truly believe that I was given the gift of step two, that I came to believe that something other than Diane could restore me to sound thinking. And because I had heard enough from all of you and watched it work in your lives, and it heard that beautiful, well, there are several lines in, in the chapter we agnostics in chapter 4 about the feeling we have for God is as much a part of us as the feeling we have for a friend, whether we want to, you know, accept it or not, it's there. And deep down inside of every man, woman, and child is a fundamental belief. And it is there in the last analysis that the great reality can be found. And I was given the gift of a lifetime. I knew in that instance exactly where God was. He was in my middle. And that because he was a part of me, because I lived and moved and had my being in him, I was still alive. Because he had been taking care of me in spite of me all these many years, because he had loved me even at my worst as much as he loved me in that moment, I was still alive, I was still breathing, and 
and I had better do something about what step three was asking me to do, and that is stop bombarding my problems with my willpower, but start to try to let my will flow in accordance to what mainstream life was. And so I made the decision to turn my will and my lives, even though I truly believe that God has always been taking care of me, but lives plural indicated to me that I better let go of the people with whom I was emotionally involved and stop trying to run their lives and leave them, God's kids, to God. That's a lot what that lives meant to me. Over to his care. I realized I wasn't giving anything away. It wasn't mine anyway to give away, you know. God, you know, my, my, I live and move and have my being in God, and he's always, you know, you know, whether or not I, you know, breathe or not, it's up to him. So uh, the whole idea was I was accepting a very basic fact in my life, that I'm God's kid, and that I better start going along with his best efforts to take care of me instead of fighting them. And it was literally a gift that was given to me that night. Once again, I was surrendered into, into an understanding of the first three steps, as rudimentary as it was at the time. But it was absolutely devastating to me. I mean, it was so overwhelming that um, my whole life turned around. You know, I got up and I went back to work the next day, and everything that I'd been doing in that job, I started, you know, I started asking for help. I started getting help, getting a lot of this paperwork done. I, I mean, just, just the asking people for help in itself was a total turnabout. And the line out of the first um, chapter in the big book, Bill's story came back to me, where Bill talks about common sense becomes uncommon sense. What had been common sense all my life for me to do became totally unnecessary, wrong to do. And I turned around and I started to ask for help. That very, that was a Monday night, that day, the next day, Tuesday, I asked a gal to be my sponsor that I had been, you know, aware of in meetings and really asked her to help me, asked her what to do, got suggestions in terms of a meeting to go to every single night of the week and some during the, you know, the noon hours when I could go. I got all the phone numbers from the gals that I've been going to meetings with that I had absolutely not given the slightest nod to, got a book full of phone numbers. I um, paid attention in terms of, of what was necessary, eating-wise, sleeping-wise, trying to do something nutritional for my body so that I was told by this gal that a spiritual program did not work well on a tired body and that if I was going to you know, make a nice little house for God to live in, I better start taking care of myself, you know. But if I was asking him to restore me to some kind of sound thinking and I was turning my will and my life over to his care, you know, I had a little part in this partnership and I better start taking care of me as well. And so I started going to a big book study meeting on Monday night, you know, women's meeting on Tuesday night. God, I was never going to go near a women's meeting. Um, a step discussion meeting on Wednesday night, another women's meeting on Thursday night, another big book study on Friday night, a closed meeting on Saturday afternoons, and a tradition and step study meeting, book meeting on Sunday night. Now that's seven days a week. And after my sponsor had suggested those, then she told me I could go wherever else I wanted to besides that. <laughs> Um, she suggested that I make a certain number of phone calls a day. It was very structured. It was very regimented. And after a while, I was unable to put up with that much structure and that much regimentation in my life because I'd always been very structured and regimented. But it sure got the basics going for me. You know, I watched my whole life turn around. And I also watched what step three was doing in my life. You know, all these fears that I had began to dissipate. But, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I wake up the fact that I didn't have this fear or that fear or the other fear. And I was trusting 
my whole life is on a new basis of trusting the power greater than myself rather than relying on me. And I came to see that this fear, all these fears, basically self-centered in nature, were the result of my relying on self and self-failing. And consciously or unconsciously, you know, when you're relying on self and it's not working, you know, there's a lot of fear there. And I began to see that. Now, since I was going to these, you know, these strong meetings, why, um, I had lots of, of, of friends, and one friend particularly of John's in mind, that, that just climbed right down my back immediately and told me that the big book very clearly stated that step three had, had, was a very vital decision, but it would have little or no permanent effect unless it was followed by a fearless and searching moral inventory searching and fearless moral inventory. And as much as I abhorred the thought of that, because I had, I thought, done a wonderful job of being a chameleon all my life, you know, dressing, doing, saying, being whatever you wanted me to be in every, any given circumstance, and very neatly avoiding who and what I really was, um, that was not really one of my favorite things that I wanted to do. And yet, you know, it had gotten a hold of me, this program yet. And someone said to me, your first real commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous is step four. You write that inventory and you have made your first real commitment to AA. And not that many people do that. And someone said to me, you know, maybe only five to ten percent of the Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous really work the program, really work all the steps, really experience sobriety really recover from the disease of alcoholism through the 12 steps. Most people don't. They just stay around dry. And the related disorders don't go away and they're just doing the same thing dry as they did, you know. And I, I wanted, I, you know, whether it was true or not, I wanted to be part of that 5 or 10%. And so I went after the fourth step. Maybe the motives weren't all that pure. But once I got into the fourth step and began to see what the book was talking about, that selfishness and self-centeredness were indeed, was indeed the root of my problem. That the resentments, the people on my resentment list that had offended me, that had done things that I felt had wronged me, that affected my self-esteem and my security and my relationship from the very things that the book lists there on page 63, these very, peop these very people were not people who had gone out and deliberately hurt me. They were people that I had tried to use and manipulate, people whose toes I had stepped on, and people who had retaliated. And not a one of them had really seriously done anything to me at all. I had gotten mad. I had gotten sore. I had put the ball in motion and come around and got me. I had stepped on their toes and they retaliated. And by the time I had finished the first part of what I consider to be the four areas of the big book outlines that we inventory, I was well aware where the problem was beginning to, to, to lie. And then when I went back and did the second thing that the big book suggested, I, I put aside the wrongs that I thought they had done. It was quite easy because I already seen that, that I had quite a strong piece of the action all the way through. And I looked at every single resentment. And I looked at the selfishness, and I looked at the fear, and I looked at the pride, and I looked at jealousy, and I looked at vindictiveness and criticism, and, and the same stuff ran rampant through every single resentment. And, um, and so when I did the third thing and, and, and got into the fears, I saw the connection there. I saw the reliance on self, the island of myself that had created most of the fears. And I also saw in the last, the fourth thing that the book asks me to do, the sex inventory, that when you boiled it down to it, every single relationship was selfish. Every single relationship was what can Diane get out of it, not what can she add to it. And sure, I caused jealousy, and sure, I caused bitterness, and sure, I caused some of the things that the book questions. 
Um, but basically, when it boils down to the final, the bottom line, Diane didn't give a damn what the guy got out of it. Whether he or not, he was taken care of. It was all, oh, what will it do for me? Will I be taken care of? Will I feel okay? Will it go my way? And I would go to any lengths to get things to go my way. And when I took it to my sponsor and shared it, um, and it was really like the watering hole desert. I was, I was really ready to dump this. And I talked about it with God, and, and I knew what it was all about. And I went to share with my sponsor, and it was an eight-hour day. And it was an eight-hour day because she shared back with me. And none of the stuff that I told her, you know, in admitting to her, you know, what I had found in my fourth step was surprising to her. None of it shocked her. And she didn't scream or, you know, turn running. She said, yeah, me too, and shared back with me. And it was the most gorgeous free-flowing exchange that I had ever been through in my life. And when I left her house at 5 o'clock that day, the way the world had come off my back, the guilts were gone, and that stuff that I had been trucking around with since my earliest childhood memory was gone. And I was a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a part of the world as a whole, and I could go to a meeting and look at somebody in the eye and share me with anybody who wanted me and talk about my innermost feelings and not be afraid of being judged or condemned or, or looked down on, you know. All of a sudden, I saw that the most useful tool I have, the greatest gift I have, was my deep dark past when it's used in God's hands to help another alcoholic and I began to experience the joy of doing that it was just incredible before I left the, uh, her house also my sponsor uh, went over step six and seven with me you know becoming entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character and step seven humbly asking him to remove them and pointed out to me that these two steps were not there to make me more comfortable they were there to make me more useful and the more entirely ready, not just willing, but the more entirely ready I was to let God, in other words, the reaffirmation of three, let God have everything that I found in steps four and five to do with as he wanted, to make me more useful. The more entirely ready I was, the better it would work in terms of letting go of it absolutely so God could, could do something with it. And she reminded me that, you know, I'd come into AA thinking I was going to fix me, and I had seen very quickly that Diane could not fix Diane, and had never been able to fix Diane and my sponsor said to me don't you suppose that maybe if you'd been able to do something about Diane you might maybe not have needed to come here in the first place and I had I had been able to say yeah yeah and through my fourth and fifth I had seen that I had not done a very swift job of running my life that all of my problems were of my own making and the enemy lay within and the problem lay well localized between my ears and there wasn't any question about it and the spiritual axiom in step 10 of our 12 and 12, it says whenever anything upsets me, no matter what the cause, something is wrong with me. doesn't mean that I'm at fault, but if I'm upset by something, I better take a look at what it is within me that's causing it. You know? And so step 7 was just another way to the world off my back. This is God's business. God is the doer. God will take care of in his time and in his own way whatever it is that needs to be done to make me more useful. So that I can be, and which is what our book tells me, it's all about a maximum usefulness to God and to my fellow man. And so she told me to, to do it. And it was suggested by this friend that, that John mentioned that, that, um, that he and I have such a strong bond around a guy in San California that's been around for a while that really walks like he talks. You know, he told me, you keep doing it till you ain't got it, you know. And I said, how do you know if you're really taking step seven? He said, well, if you still got what you know is getting in your way, then you, you know you have to keep working on it until you keep, you know. In other words, step ten says when these things crop up, 
we promptly ask God to remove them. And so as things surface, I do. I remember that I cannot fix me. The harder I work on me, the worse things get. If I get about things I can take care of, like making the list in step eight and becoming willing to make amends to people that I have harmed, um, and discussing that with my sponsor, by the way, that was a very, very valuable exercise step eight was. I thought I was just going to make a list. In fact, I didn't think I was going to make a list. I thought I was going to go back and use step four. And, and she said, no, you make a new list, Diane. And make some notes about things that are pertinent in each one of these relationships, these people that you feel you owe an amend to, and bring it to me. And I did, and we spent another part of the day talking about the people on this list. One thing I found out, I still thought I had a lot of power. I thought that I owed amends to about anybody that I ever rubbed shoulders with. And she said, wrong, you know. Like, I wanted to write all these people in Spain and tell them about all the lies that I told them. And she said, why? Why? Why create harm where there hasn't been any? You haven't contracted marriage with any of them. By the way, I heard the other day that alcoholic women don't, don't marry, they take hostages. And I loved that. So I didn't take any hostages in Spain. So I really hadn't done anything other than hurt myself by doing a lot of lying that I had to live with. It hadn't really emotionally affected anybody else there. Okay. Um, the couple times I've been back since then, I have had some of the little lies I've told very gently tossed in my face innocently, you know, and I've had to live with that. And I realized there is a men to die in. But um, she and I took a look at where there were really amends to. And uh, it was, for me, a very, very interesting study in my relationships with other people. And once again, how I was always on the take. And if I did anything for anybody, it was always with a hook and never a string attached. And as I set about, with God's help, making these amends, um, I really began to feel a real rightness with the world. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was a member of the human race. I belonged here as a child of God. I had dignity, and I had value, and I had worth. And I had heard from this friend of John's and mine in California that fussing about things like self-image and self-esteem and self-worth, you know, was not where it was at. Anything working on it, me working on anything with the word self in it was a problem. But if I would work the steps for the purpose that they were written, sobriety, one day at a time, I would experience a dignity and a value and a worth that was unlike anything I'd ever known. And I would have that as a child of God, knowing that my father, my great friend within, was taking care of me. And that any credit that I may be having on any given day, any success, excuse me, that I may be having on any given day, it's far to his credit and not to mine. And that when I mess up, when I get into trouble, I better take a look at what I did and stop blaming God. Because I am the one. God is good and God is taking care of me. I am the one that creates my own problems. And if there are problems in the world, it's as a result of, of self-will and riot. And not because God sets me up or, or puts obstacles in my path or tests me or moves me like a puppet. He doesn't do that. He loves me and takes care of me when I will allow it. And I came to see that God himself cannot help me until I will allow it. And at any given time in my life, I have been doing the best I could with what I knew with my information in my life. And that as I know better, I do better. And so I was asked by this friend of John, and I remember that of other people too, that all of God's kids do the best they can in their life. Do the best they can with the information they've got going for them at any given time. And when they know better, they do better. And that God himself does not judge us. You know, God is a God of justice without judgment. You know, what we pour into life, we get out of life. What we sow, we reap. What goes around, comes around. And so it, it relieves me of the need to, you know, think that I've got to be out there judging either myself or what somebody else does. 
you know, because God does not do that himself. Um, and a lot of this came through the sharing in step nine. You know, when when um, the promises are written in our big book halfway through step nine, we start to experience some of these things. You know, it came together for me, you know, in step nine. I woke up. You know, and it talks about having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And this pal of John's in mind said, you ain't going to have no spiritual awakening behind 11 steps you ain't took. He, taught, he loves to talk with all these double negatives, and that's just the way he says it, and I love it. You know, he's very clearly, you know, you're not going to have a spiritual awakening if you don't work the steps. And so somewhere into the ninth step, I woke up to the fact that I'm here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to be about God's business, sharing me with anybody who wants me in love the chips fell where they may. And that, you know, that's what the carpenter was here about too, love and service, you know. And that I, I do believe that God is love and we are created out of that love and put here to express it. And what a marvelous, what a glorious opportunity we have in Open Life Synonymous. You know, what a glorious opportunity we have. Um, step 10 lovingly reminds me that I don't just take inventory once and forget it. You know, I've, I've learned how to use a set of tools. And, you know, tools are tools. If you don't use them, they get rusty and you forget how. And so step 10 luckily reminds me that I continue to take inventory, whether it's just taking a look at what I've done today or whether I do an in-depth one behind a major chunk of truth that's surfaced or behind, you know, something that has gone awry in my life. And that I'm much happier with me in any given day if I take care of today's business today. And so I make amends promptly when I, you know, I promptly admit it when I do something that I know I shouldn't have done. And it does keep, you know, I don't stockpile and accumulate garbage from day to day if I will do this. The sooner I take care of something I've done that I'm not happy about, the better off I am. And so step 10 really kind of keeps me level, you know. To me it says, Diane, how well are you practicing these principles in all your affairs today? How well are you being about God's business? How well are you letting him take care of you? Because I believe that his gift us was made at the foundation. You know, we had the whole package when we came in. You know, only he knew it, we didn't. And we had to come to discover it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I also believe that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a self-improvement program. How in the heck can we ever improve on God's handiwork? I think we're the only ones of his creatures that try. You know, the birds and the bees. You don't find the birds and the bees and the other animals running around comparing themselves to each other and want what this or that or the other one has, you know. Um, I think that Alcoholics Anonymous is a self-discovery program where we uncover the stuff that's been in our way and discover the innate goodness that's always been ours. You know, that everything we came to A wanting to know, we already knew. Everything we came wanting to be, we were already, we already were, only it was covered up. And AA, we'll do the 12 steps of recovery, enables us to uncover and discover what God gave us in the first place and to discard the junk that was in the way, you know. So really, step 10 is saying to me, you know, how well am I keeping, you know, how am I keeping level? Am I in touch today with what I am doing? Um, step 11, seeking through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God is my goal. I do believe that balance in life is dependent, is, is related to my relationship with my great friend within, that manageability is related to my relationship with him on any given day, and that if I am in tune with him and what he wants me to do, you know, life flows along quite well and I'm useful to him. And so in moments when I try to listen to him in meditation, and in moments in which I talk to him in prayer, 
I am just um, developing this relationship with him. Um, I see more spontaneity today. I yak at him, you know, I just yak at him like I'd yak with any one of you and I, you know, I just dump everything on him. You know, when I do something I don't like, I tell him, I say, that was dumb, I knew better when I did it. Now, I don't like it and I know you don't like it. And I will do better with your help, but I try to dump it and not tuck it around and beat myself with it. I don't do all that well with it depending on what it is, especially when my ego's well on the way. But I try to do it. I remember to do it. And whether or not I develop, do it effectively yet just depends on how much ego involvement there is, you know, how much pride is in the way. Um, and when something neat happens to me, I share that with him too, you know. I let him know that, you know, that was me. That really shouldn't happen to someone like me, and it did, and I know where it comes from, and I give credit where credit is due. And it, 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 it's helping to release from that all-consuming ego that just it consumes me alive when I start thinking, oh, look what I did. And I start taking credit for something neat that's happened in my life. And so step 11 is, is, is an integral part of my daily of my daily existence. And I follow exactly what the big book outlines. I do exactly, that's one of my tools I use, is exactly what the big book asks that I do each day, along with a number of growing and changing readings and different things I use. Because I do believe that if I begin the day and end the day positively programming my unconscious mind with whatever reading, you know, I have got at my fingertips that day that it's got spiritual significance, that, that lights up my insides because of the spiritual truth that I identify with. It is important. It makes me more aware of God's kids and of, of ways I can be useful. It makes me more alert to people that, that might be out there somewhere. Because I don't believe that it's all just confined to AA. I don't think God divides our lives into compartments. I believe it's one, I believe it's one great big unified whole. And that there are 12-step calls at work and at play and at church and at home just as much as there are here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's, I think, part two of, of the mandate, as it were, in step 12, you know. Having been given this spiritual awakening as a result of the step, this raw gift in which I have awakened to why I believe I'm here, it's up to me to help God out by carrying the message. And it's, to me, it's in all areas of life, you know. I believe He's got all the power. In fact, I know it. In the depths of my being, I know it. But I believe that we, as God's kids, are the channel through which He goes forth into His creation. And so we have a partnership, you know. He needs us and we need Him. His needs are our needs of His opportunities. He needs us to express Himself in His world. And being beaten to death by the bottle and coming here to find a solution lest we die, I really feel we're very, very fortunate kids. You know, we are the ones that God has a, you know, an opportunity to really reach and, and work through. Because we have to. We have to find life and life is spiritual. We have to live this way if we want to be free. And so I, you know, I, in the longer I'm around this app, the more grateful I become because I see just how fortunate, you know, you know, we've been, ele- you know, we've gone through, you know, a dying to self, as it were, in order to be reborn. We've been reborn out of the land of the living dead into the land of the living. And have found an incredibly beautiful way of living that makes, you know, what we are doing before that causes to be totally unnecessary. You know, there's a whole new way of life here in AA. And, I, and I'm utterly amazed as I look back and, and, and remember that I came here just so I wouldn't have to drink one day at a time. Never knowing that Alcoholics Anonymous is the most incredible way of life. It's an exciting spiritual adventure is what it is. And practicing the principles in all our affairs 
it's, you know, um, you know, to me the great principles are the principles of love and service. And like I said before, I believe that's why God put us here, as manifestations of his love to express that love. And, um, you know, we just have such a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. So I'm very, very proud I am to be a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm very grateful that I went through exactly what I did go through to get where I am today because I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And for me to share with you tonight, as it is to share with me with Alcoholics Anonymous, is a privilege. And it, you know, and it will be a privilege. And um, I look forward to many, many, many one day at a time, you know, trudging with this incredible fellowship, doing whatever I can, whatever God needs me to do to give back just a small portion, knowing that I can never begin to put, to add to what has been given to me, and knowing that, you know, life is a great, big, beautiful thing today, and I never dreamed it could be possible. And I thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for being here, and I want you to know I love you. I love you very much.